Hey everyone, AJ here, Director of Life Groups and Discipleship here at Three Crosses. And Danny Strange here, Senior Pastor at Three Crosses. And we told you we'd be back. We are here to talk to you about how you belong to Jesus. Pastor Danny, we are at episode nine of this series, and hopefully you've got a better grasp of definitions, working definitions of the image of God. We've been talking a lot about that, uh, trying to come at it from different angles, but really trying to capture that you are born in the royal image of God, and you've been equipped with a soul and a body to then go do what we're called to do. And so uh, we've been tracking how the fall has affected um, us as image bearers and it's affected us in a way that we still retain that image, but we've been affected to start acting in sin and how that affects community. And so if we're tracking the biblical narrative, we pick up the story with Israel. And so that's where I want to start this episode with you, Pastor Danny. Um, as we're wrestling with this image of God, I've noticed that there's not that much biblical data in the Old Testament about the image and likeness of God. I think it appears in Genesis 1, like a lot of times, uh, Genesis 5, and then Genesis 9. But then you get into the story of the Old Testament in Israel, and it just kind of disappears. And so I'm wondering, is there any connection between what's happening with the story of Israel and uh, being reformed back into what was originally designed as the image of God? That's really interesting. We started this series with that concept that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is something that is so important, like especially where it's put in the Bible, the first pages of scripture, and yet it's not defined in the Bible. And like you're saying, it's almost like they've forgotten all about this most important concept. And yet what I've loved in this study is that we've been uncovering that if you know how to look in the scriptures, what you start to see is that the whole Old Testament, especially this Genesis narrative, even the Exodus Leviticus narrative, is about this concept of image of God as it's compared to other ancient Near Eastern philosophies. So we've talked a lot about Babylonian uh, theology, Egyptian theology, Mesopotamian theology from different religions. And one of the things that, that we've realized is that what the Bible does, especially in Genesis, is it compares and contrasts the people of God in the Bible to the way that people in other nations that didn't worship our God believed the gods existed. And so I'm thinking we've we kind of gotten all the way up to Genesis 11 at this point, which is a story of the Tower of Babel. I was thinking about the Tower of Babel through the lens of the image of God, because part of where we started was that humans are created to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Babel is a story about people who, instead of going out and filling the earth, now they're deciding to build a tower to the heavens in one place and get stuck, stay put in a single location. And it's interesting, this is a type of story that shows up in many other ancient Near Eastern philosophies with one notable difference. In other ancient Near Eastern philosophies, this tower story or the human achievement story always freaks the gods out. And the gods are like, oh no, like kind of like how Genesis 11 starts. If these people do this, nothing will be impossible for them. We need to squash them because they can't take over. We have to be the gods. And it's interesting, Genesis 11 has similar language with an absolutely different conclusion where God we realize is not threatened by humanity. He doesn't squash humanity. He doesn't send a flood after Genesis 11. What he does instead is he gently 
destroys their tower and repositions them out into the world again. It says, no, 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 no. You are created to rule over this earth, fill it, subdue it, to carry out my image throughout this planet. No building up. You need to go out. And then we turn the page in Genesis 12 and God calls Abraham from a nation far away and says, I want to form a people out of you um, and tells Abraham several times, I want nations of the world, all the nations to be blessed through you. And so even through God's act of discipline in Genesis 11, he's restoring people to the mission of God, the Missio Dei, and into the Imago Dei, the image of God through that. I think about the same thing as we turn the pages into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and start hearing about the sacrificial system. We see God creating this kingdom of priests, um, and in other ancient Near Eastern philosophies, sacrificial systems existed because the gods were hungry, right? And so the job of human beings is to go out in the world, create food, right? Create meat, come back, harvest it, bring it to their gods and feed them or else their gods would kill them because they got so hungry. That is not how the sacrificial system works in Israel. In Israel, same thing, people bringing food to God, bringing people, bring, people bringing meat to God, not because he's hungry, but somehow the sacrificial system in Israel is meant to restore them into right relationship with him again, to restore their likeness of God. We've sinned. We need to sacrifice. We've fallen away. We need to sacrifice. We need to stay pure. We need to atone. And so this atonement theology in Israel is something that doesn't feed their gods, but it's something that restores them not merely into right relationship with their God, but also into the image of God again, so they could walk out of the temple purified and cleansed. I love how Jesus talks about this in the New Testament, where he says, really at the core of it, it's the person getting on his knees and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the person who walks away justified, because even that whole sacrificial system is designed to create heart transformation to restore God's people into his likeness. And so bottom line, what we see in the Old Testament, what we see throughout the scriptures is that the image of God is actually pervasive in every story, almost as a, a diametric opposition to other myth narratives of other religions to say, no, in our religion, God has created us in his image, in his likeness, to do his work, to live on his mission. And all the things that we do for him and in his name are keeping us restored into right relationship into his image once again. The beautiful thing about the story of Israel is you see them, you know, trying to obey. They have the sacrificial system, yet they just inevitably come up short over and over. And that leads us to, you know, the great news of Jesus. And so, Jesus comes and there's this interesting claim that maybe you haven't thought about, but um, when we're talking about the image of God, he comes and claims himself as the new Adam. And then the scriptures affirm it in the New Testament. Uh, I'm thinking of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He says, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is a reference to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. In Romans 5, he says as much as well. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so there seems to be this interconnection between Adam and what was and Jesus and this, uh, this new type of humanity. And so uh, before we were talking about this concept and you asked an interesting question, uh, you know, why didn't God just simply create a new kind of entity out of the dust? Why did it have to be through the Virgin Mary? Uh, why couldn't he just you know, grab some clay or dust or whatever it is and, and sculpt this new humanity and say, hey, 
no longer is it this Adam line, it's this Jesus line. It's funny, I could ask even a more fundamental question of why did God create all these humans in the middle of Adam and Jesus, right? It's like he creates this human being and it fails. And then God could say, you know what? Flood the earth. This time I'm going to put myself on the earth. I'm going to come down. Uh, the sun's going to come down in the person of Jesus Christ and start a new nation. And we'll be perfect from day one, right? That would be in our image. If God were trying to create a bunch of perfect beings on the planet, he could have just replicated himself with no proclivity to say it, right? And just filled the earth with a bunch of Jesuses walking around, right? Um, and yet he didn't. And I think fundamentally, the reason that question is flawed is because it shows that we're not really understanding what the purpose of God in creating humankind was, right? It was not that God was in heaven thinking, I'm perfect, I exist in perfect unity, but if only I could fill a planet with myself, that would be great. There's something about the heart, the procreative heart of God to create human beings in his image and likeness who were different than him. We will never be God, but at the same time to create us a community of worshipers, right? And so for us being finite creatures and then being susceptible to the fall and falling, now we've got this problem where, okay, we are this person who is distinct from God. We are other, we are not perfect by nature. And yet God has this desire to have us live with him in perpetuity on this planet, in his kingdom forever and ever. And so really it's not, I need to recreate something better, but really the question is this humanity needs to be restored. And I think that's where that answer comes in of why Jesus was born of a woman, born of the seed of man, came into the earth, not through dust, but through flesh and blood, born like a normal human being uh, is because Jesus was coming not to just show us a new way of living, but actually to come and restore us from within. There was a church father named Irenaeus who uh, lived from probably 120 to 200 AD, wrote in the middle to the end of the second century there, and really wrestled with his concept of image of God. And he has a great analogy. He says that, that the image of God in a lot of ways is like a portrait, like a painting. And, and the image of God, as we see from the fall, we've talked about for the last two weeks, has been marred. It's been destroyed in some way. It's been ruined. Someone threw paint at this portrait and made it gross. Irenaeus says, if that portrait were to be restored, you need a couple of things. One, you, you need the original. You need someone who understands the original so that they can restore it back to the original capacity. Two, you need to restore it on its original canvas. It's not a restoration if you just paint another one. Restoration means restoring it on its original canvas. Canvas, and you need to have someone who's outside of the portrait coming to the portrait, restoring it on its original canvas to its original design. And so Irenaeus says, this is what Jesus has done by coming into the world in the image and likeness of God. He was created. He was not created, but he, he was in the image and likeness of God uh, in the sense where Paul says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, right? So Jesus, who is not a created being, don't quote me on that. Uh, Jesus came into the world in perfect image, in perfect likeness as the perfect human being. And he was the one who had the credentials and ability since he was the author to look back upon us, this marred portrait of the image of God and restore us on our original canvas back into the Imago Dei again, right? This is why in Christian circles, when we talk about the process of growing in our faith or sanctification, we call it growing in Christ likeness. 
because Christ, who is perfectly living out the Imago Dei in the image and likeness of God, we are growing into his image by becoming like him and being restored in our likeness as well. So Jesus comes into the earth through human means, supernaturally, born of a virgin, and yet into the human uh, frame to restore us from the ins- from the outside in and from the inside out. What's beautiful is that we're not the only ones in church history to have are currently wrestling with this question. We can go back to people like Irenaeus. And uh, one of the things I was struck by um, when we engaged with Irenaeus's work was, uh, you know, he dealt a lot with uh, Gnosticism. And if you're unfamiliar with Gnosticism, it's the idea that um, this, this existence here on earth is inherently bad and the spiritual, the spiritual nature of the human is good. And so the goal of life is kind of to escape this this soul this bodily experience and go into this higher existence and so they really looked inward which to me kind of was thinking about this idea that Irenaeus is posing that yes Jesus came to take on human flesh and take on a spirit he took on humanity and um, then we get to the gospel message it was his life death resurrection and ascension And we've talked a fair amount about death, resurrection, and ascension, but I feel like Irenaeus is tapping into something here about Jesus's life. And I feel like that is kind of a pillar in this gospel message that kind of gets overlooked sometimes. So to conclude us here, what is Jesus as the new Adam, as this one who's coming, uh, this, this person who knows the original portrait, who comes to restore the portrait on the same very wood? What does this say about what we can learn from the life of Jesus? I think talking about this Gnostic idea of the spirit is good and the the body is bad or matter is bad, um, Jesus tells us that's not true, right? So Jesus chooses to be born into the human frame because rest restoring the Imago Dei in humankind is not merely re- restoring their spirits, not merely restoring their behavior, but restoring everything about us, including our bodies to the image and likeness of God. I think of Jesus in the resurrection where they, they meet him on the road to Emmaus and they can't really recognize him. And then they figure out it is him when they see the wounds in his body and he has them break the bread and drink the cup and their eyes are open and they recognize Jesus. And we learn that Jesus is resurrected physically, right? He says, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm not antimatter. I am flesh and blood. I am not merely a spirit. And yet we see that Jesus had this resurrected body. We see him doing strange things like walking through walls. We also see him in an unrecognizable frame, partially because their eyes were blinded to his identity and partially because he is fully recreated body, soul, and spirit um, after his resurrection, right? And so uh, there's this, this idea that our bodies matter, right? Whether it's our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit or our church is the body of Christ. There's a literal and a figurative sense to all of these things. Um, or the fact where when we die, we are not going to be like the cartoons floating up with our spirits to heaven and playing harps, we are going to be resurrected bodily and we're going to rule and reign with him on this earth with real dust and flesh and blood for years and years and years until all eternity, right? And so I think what we learn in this teaching about the incarnation is that restoring us to the image of God includes uh, a restoration, not just of our spirits, our souls, but also a restoration of our bodies, Right. It's interesting too. look at Jesus. Um, He was perfectly created in the image and likeness of God when he stepped onto the planet um, as a created being in the sense of being fashioned together in the womb of Mary. Um, And yet 
we know that there's this idea that some of the aspects of his divinity, he set aside, right? So Jesus was not omnipresent when he put on a human body. Jesus was not necessarily all knowing all the time in a human body. He set aside some of his incommunicable properties and became like us in every way. And so it's interesting even to wrestle a little bit with Jesus in the resurrected body, how it's slightly different than in the frames we have today, um, but fundamentally the same. They did not say, what is that? Is it an alien? They knew it was a human. And yet, and yet there was something different about the humanity of Jesus that was even different in his resurrected state as well. I think that topic is so fascinating. The uh, Jesus being a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God that I think it requires a part two to this conversation. <laughs> so we've ran out of time. We're going to be back tomorrow. Hopefully you tune in. Hopefully you've been enjoying this. Uh, let us know. Send us an email. We, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. But uh, for now, Pastor Danny, we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.